0: Hi folks, before we start the podcast, I'm just asking you for your support. If you listen to our podcast, if you enjoy what we do, please help us keep them viable. Uh, And how you do that is you join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. The link is in the bottom of the pod. Uh, It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month. And you get lots and lots of additional content, including exclusive podcasts and access to events that we carry out for our members. Um, All of that is available right now on patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. And you don't even have to listen to me. We don't insert those plugs into those podcasts. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. Uh, you can try it for the month, it's a great time, beginning of the month now, try it, see what you think, Uh, you don't, there's no contract so you can cancel at the end, so maybe make May, the the time you actually have a go and see what you think, Uh, we'd really appreciate it, we really do need the support and we rely on you totally for this, so, you know, if you want me to beg, I'll beg, it's patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack, thank you.
1: Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host Rory Hearn, and I'm delighted to be joined back in our podcast by a guest we've had on before, Robert Sweeney, who is a senior policy analyst with the think tank Task, where I used to work myself in the past, um, in doing analysis, economic analysis as well. Rob, it's great to have you back in the podcast. Great to be
2: here, Rory. What's the story? <laughs>
1: Yeah all all good all good we're going to talk today about a report that you a really really detailed uh, report that you have just published on the whole question of land um in Ireland land and its impact on the housing system and um, and looking at you know the changing issue of land ownership the the role of real estate funds um and that question of you know how fundamental land is to housing because a lot of the discussion of housing um land is often not mentioned that much yet it is the absolutely fundamental component and in many cases it is it is one of the key cost components um to build new housing as well and we know the state has a massive amount of it and we also know that investor funds have bought a lot and when listeners are thinking about this, it's important that, you know, in some cases, we've seen that land costs can be up to 30 to 40 percent of new build costs. So when people talk about rising costs of construction and housing, often what they're talking about is actually the rising cost of land and what is being charged for land. And again, when you think even more about it, you know, land, this is, a, is the way we treat land. Is fundamental because if we look at places like Singapore, the state essentially bought most of the land, development land, and then they hand it over to private developers to build affordable housing. Whereas in Ireland, we've allowed up to probably the last since post the crash, private developers hold on to a lot of land. And now we have the situation where the state owns a lot of land. But the question is, Rob, in your report, what did you find? that was new what told us something or what were i suppose the key findings for people in understanding who owns the land and i suppose we're talking about development land around dublin in kind of around our cities who owns it who controls it and what's happening to it well
2: I'll, I'll, i'll go to the first question um what did i find in terms of how how land is affecting our housing system yeah there's a couple of parts to the reports, and um, I, I look at what factors have been holding back or slowing down the supply of private housing, for-profit housing, and I also look at the public housing system as well. If you look at the private housing system for the moment, um, I find through interviews with, with people in, in the construction sector, land agents and, and so on. Is that there's been three factors holding back the supply of uh, for-profit housing Um one of them was after the crash there wasn't much finance around the the banks had stopped lending to the construction sector yeah uh, another one was that uh, it wasn't uh, profitable enough for the developers to build because there'd been a collapse in house prices and um a drop in costs, but not one that matched the, the fall in house prices. So there was a viability problem, which is complicated phenomenon. There's other issues there. But, but another factor was how NAMA handled its uh, portfolio disposal. So at its peak, NAMA probably held, and this is based on the interviews, um, around 75% of... Um, residentially zoned land in the greater Dublin area. And it disposed of its portfolios and it sold them to a variety of agents. Some of them would have been private equity funds. Others would have been uh, high net worth individuals. And essentially, um, partly because of the conditions at the time, it wouldn't have been that profitable to build. But when NAMA sold its portfolio, there was a lot of speculation on the land. Uh, speculation has changed through time. So there is still speculation today Um, where people buy land. They they might put planning permission on that land and, and then sell it on. If you look at the... Just to explain ad-
1: that, Rob. Pause one second. Because speculation, what is speculation? Explaining it there.
2: Yeah. So land speculation is a cent- speculation of anything, including land, is buying something at one price, selling it at a... Higher price in the future, and then profiting from the difference in the price from from the capital gain. So, if if you look at land speculation today, uh, you might have a private equity fund or an individual, high net worth individual. They might buy a piece of zoned land. They might put planning permission on that land, and when. Planning permission is on the land, there is an uplift in the land value, it's considered more valuable, Yeah. and then they sell it on. The point I'm trying to make is that the land speculation uh, after the Nama disposals 2015, 2016, 2017, it didn't actually put anything on the land. Those uh, entities, at least in many cases, we don't have hard data, but this is just based on the interviews. They bought that land. They sit on that, sat on that land for a couple of years. Um, sometimes for even longer than that. Sometimes people still haven't developed out the, the NAMA land, but generally they might have sat on it for a couple of years and then sold it on. They didn't put planning permission. They didn't add any value to the land. And that disrupted the, the housing system because if you think of, um, you know the building of housing there's a number yeah. of links in the chain and part of that link is having a supply of, of development land so in that case land just to go back to my original point there was three issues that was holding back supply land speculation has been uh, especially around 15 16 6 17 one of the components which have helped back the, 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 supply of uh, private housing. It's, it's less of an issue today for sure. And also the report, uh, looked at various, various issues around, uh, land issues and how that has, uh, affected the supply of, of public housing. So as, as you will be well aware, Rory, um, that we haven't been building that many houses and insofar As the state has been building houses, Uh, they've been relying on, say, turnkey developments, which is essentially building on private lands. Yeah, Um, built by
1: private builders or developers and then bought by the state, essentially.
2: Yeah, or or maybe the state might contract a a builder to uh, build a a unit on private land and say, look, we're going to buy this once once it's completed. Yes. Uh, Now, the the sort of
1: forward purchasing by... It could be yes,
2: exactly, yeah, <laughs> now, to the funds, yeah, yes, exactly, so so the advantage to the, to the local authority yeah. in that case is that it's it's quick, you know they don't yeah. have to they don't have to worry about uh, the, the whole development process, but um certainly, there's disadvantages to that as well, um one of them being is that you can't actually control the type of develop- you've got much less control of the type of unit that that is built, so there is a mismatch at the moment between the type of social housing units that we've been building over the last few years. Lots of three bed- bedroom apartments, but not three bedroom houses and the type of people on, on, on the waiting lists. And the, if, if you build uh, public housing, social housing on public land, you can essentially control the type of unit that's being built. Now, but one thing that's kind of uh, discouraging local authorities from building on public land, at least some local authorities, is that they don't necessarily have access to land in the right places. There is lots of publicly owned land, but it isn't necessarily in the places where there is need for social housing. And so, one way to remedy that would be for the states, whether it's local authorities or some other entity, to go out and uh, replenish its its land banks, so that in the future, in the coming years, that they will be equipped and able to engage in more so called direct building, i.e., building public housing on, on public land.
1: And, and you know, it's it's fascinating, and, and like I'm really delighted that you know you did the report and you did the research and it's really you know i think it's important to to highlight you know, the importance of us looking at this issue and it raises so many questions. Again, and it's something that we just don't look at. And I know, like, you know, NESC, the National Economic and um, Social Research Council have been looking at it and highlighted the issue of land. You know, PJ Drudy, who, you know, has been researching this area, were highlighting the issue. And I think, like, figures were given, I think, during the boom time, because this isn't just an issue, the land speculation since the crash. Like, pre, you know, the Celtic Tiger years, you know, the it was. I think point out that at one stage in the greater Dublin area, I think it was like ten developers or five developers. I can't remember the exact number controlled like eighty or ninety percent of zone development land.
2: Yeah, that, that that's true. I I read that uh, piece by PJ as well. So, um, I would say that there was a lot of land speculation in, in the Celtic Tiger years as well. Say the the two thousands before the crash. The type of land speculation that happened in those years was quite different to the type of land speculation that was seen in recent years. Uh, during Celtic Tiger years, what you might have had was that uh, you have, say, it could be a developer, but probably a group of individuals or maybe something like that. They might set up a company. They would typically buy unzoned land, land with, with without any zoning, on the edge of a town, Yeah, the edge of the city. And then they would try to get that land zoned. And if that land got zoned, there could be a very, very big uplift in the value. It could increase by 10 times. It could increase by 20 times. And that would be a massive uh, windfall profit for uh, the, the speculator. Now, that type of speculation isn't as prevalent today primarily because we've zoned too much land and that local authorities are uh, not going to be zoning as much land going into the future. We're trying to build up rather than outwards. But but to PJ's point, so PJ makes the point that um, during the Celtic Tiger era, there might've been about 12 developers controlling um, the land market in, in the greater Dublin area. Now, most of those developers would have went into, to NAMA and, yeah. and then NAMA took over those assets and, and sold those assets. And it sold those assets as, including the land, as I already kind of mentioned to a variety of agents, private equity funds and also maybe high net worth individuals as well. And so if you look at who's controlling the land now, I'd say a lot of it, you know, we don't have data on it, but a lot of it has probably made its way back into the construction sector. Uh, It would be entities like Kearns, Glen Bay, would have control of a significant amount of land in in the Greater Dublin area. And when it's not Kearns or Glen Bay, yes, you you still have uh, investment funds, private equity funds, who are buying land, maybe sometimes... Partnering with developers to, to, to yeah. buy land as well, because they actually, you know, finance a lot of the construction now that, that that happens.
1: Yeah. It is a significant though, you know, I suppose part of why I was making that point change and, and you're highlighting this in the report that essentially we, our land has become our land market and this is the private land market and private land ownership has become, you know, much, much more you know, it was commodified, now it is financialized in that it has been taken over. As you said, like if 75% of land, development zoned land was held by NAMA, they have sold most of that, not all, they still hold some of it, to global funds, US investment funds or who they've said they sold the majority of it to. Now some has circulated back to the likes of Cairn and Glenvey, but Cairn and Glenvey are essentially... Financialized entities, they are controlled by shareholders globally. They are the key players in them acted for investor funds. They are in ways arms of investor funds or local agents for investor funds. Um, and are themselves, you know, um, involved in that area that we now see this control of our land market being held by investment funds in various forms and they look at land completely differently. And as you say, you know, when we look at now what's being built on the land, it is all now apartments built to rent apartments, you know, or like this is the, the, the real issue that, you know, this land and you look at the planning permissions. I was looking at it, 43,000 units were given planning permission last year. Um half of those, over half, 26,000 were for apartments. 20,000 of those are in Dublin. And you can see around Dublin now, you know, that there is is building going on, but it is all investor fund built to rent apartments. I think if we look at what's coming down the line, it's just more all built to rent investor fund apartments. So the question is, you know, that land and what NAMA did, it sowed the seeds of this crisis as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a few things there. Um, basically, I think this was in an Oireachtas, uh inquiry, I think it was the head of NAMA who said this, that um, about 40% of the land went to investor funds and the remainder went to a variety of other entities, uh, in, including uh, high net worth individuals. Um, so part of it was investment funds. I, I don't think all of it was investment funds. Um, but I I would see it that the NAMA sales were, you know, kind of a lost opportunity. If you look at what's done in other European countries, um, the Netherlands is, is often held up as, as an example in, in this yeah. case. What the Netherlands, what local authorities and municipalities do in the Netherlands, they will buy land from the private sector. Yeah. And then they will furnish that land with infrastructure, whether it's water, electricity, uh, parks, uh, etc. And then they will either develop that land themselves, or potentially lease it back to the private sector, who will build on it, or potentially sell it back to the private sector. Now, if you, if you look at NAMA, NAMA held, you know, most of the land in the Greater Dublin Area, the development land zoned. And its mandate was to maximize, at least in the initial years, its, its mandate was to maximize the returns to, to the state. So it essentially sold land to whoever would just bid the most for it. And so there wasn't any strings attached, uh, by the state in terms of, you know, um, what you might do with that land. So it essentially had all the land. It had the potential to be a kind of, Land development agency, if I can use that word. Um, but it, it wasn't, it just ended up selling that land to speculators, to people who, who still hadn't developed that land. So I, I would like to see Ireland move towards a kind of more continental European style model where, where the state plays a more active role in land management. And, uh, through this, because if, if you look at like, one of the factors holding back, and this is just the private market, what's holding back supply today? Um, a lot of developers will claim it, it's not viable to build. And yeah. all, they'll always claim that, of course. It's, it's, it's in their interest to do so. But one of the things that, that came through in, in my interviews. So they were saying, look, we, we have land with planning permission in places like, uh, Kildare. Nace uh, greater Dublin area, but there isn't any schools around uh, that land doesn't have necessary the infrastructure such that we can sell at, at a price w- w- which will create profits for us. so it's up to the state then to to buy land, furnish it with infrastructure, and develop that land itself and sell it back to the private sector or lease it back to the private sector such that it will then be in a the land will then be ready to be developed. So I, I think the state needs to step in in, in that case.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, I think that whole question of how we've, again, in many ways, it just comes back to, we have handed so much of our housing system, including land over to the market and over to you know, investor funds um as you described them, high net worth individuals, which are essentially the 1% speculators. And, you know, and right, you look at you know the inequality and the rising inequality and how this contributes to it, you know, you point to, you know, what they do in 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 the Netherlands. And that's I think really important that we show, you know, it, it can be done differently um, and should be. And and in many ways as well, we have the land there. And I because I think yes, on the one hand, there is this issue of, you know, how do we make um, housing delivery viable for the private sector. But on the one hand, is that not just a completely wrong way of looking at it? Because you could draw the analogy and say, do, does does our health system and our health policy and our Department of Health spend a whole amount of time thinking, how do we make health profitable for private hospitals? You know, we should be, you know, and and if you think about it, right, it's mad actually, because that's what our Department of Housing has been doing for the last decade. They've been spending most of their time thinking, how do we make housing profitable and viable for the private sector? Rather than going, why is the public sector not doing this? Why are we not building up our own capacity?
2: It, it, it's funny that you mentioned that. I, I was actually thinking about this uh, analogy last night uh, that, um, you know, should the construction sector be kind of like what the health sector should be. It's not in Ireland. We should have a fully public healthcare sector, um, health service, for a variety of reasons. Should the construction sector be like that? Um, Well, there's plenty of cases... As in,
1: should the construction sector be like a public service in the way the health service is a publicly delivered service? So uh,
2: I think if you look internationally, um, there's plenty of examples where you know, actually, Ireland is the exception in, in this case where it doesn't have a fully national healthcare service. Yeah. Where uh, healthcare is primarily provided by the state. Uh, if you look internationally, I'm not aware of any uh, countries which have a fully nationalized construction uh, sector. So that being the case, I think it, it is, it's always going to be a mixture of public and private uh, or nonprofit public and private units that are built. But I'd certainly like to see Ireland or Dublin, particularly where where, uh, the affordability crisis is most acute to move towards a model like they, you know, I'm sure you're obviously very aware and the listeners will be aware of the Vienna model where potentially a third or a half of units that are built in Vienna are essentially non-market housing. And um, I think realistically, uh, that's, that's what we could be aspiring to. I, I don't think we're going to have, say, a fully national or nonprofit uh, housing sector. So that in the case, you do have to think about how to incentivize the private
1: sector to build, whether we like it or not. And, but, but, but Rob, but <laughs> the problem is though, we've spent all our energy on that Yeah. and we haven't put the energy into, it's like, yeah, I'm not saying we should have a completely nationalised housing system. What I'm saying is that if we look at health, we can see where the state does it and the important role it plays. And we don't, and I'm just kind of using that as an example to think we don't spend all our time in policy, health policy, thinking how can we make health profitable for private providers? But in housing, we do And this is part of the problem that it's so the imbalance is so extreme in our housing that the state plays such a little role in direct delivery. Of course, it plays lots of roles. Yeah.
2: I mean, mean, the Irish state does spend quite a bit of money on on the housing sector, but a lot of it goes towards, you know, uh, well, there's a lot of current spending. Yeah, so so on. It's Um,
1: Practically a third of our housing expenditure every year is going to private landlords or owners of property.
2: So, if if you look at housing for all, um, you might remember the figures better than me, but they're hoping to the plan is to build some is it 31 32,000 units a year, 33,000 a year, 33,000 a year, and of those, is it? basically about a third are planned to be non-market housing something like that when it, when it gets up and running.
1: Yeah, they're saying 10,000 social per year and 5,000 between cost rental and affordable purchase. Yeah, okay so
2: something like that. Now um, if you look at how many houses we're probably going to build um, next year it, it could be something like uh, 30,000 if, if you look at the commencement uh, data but Global inflation, the the refugee crisis has just thrown a complete spanner into into that works. I think if if you want to hit those targets, you're probably going to have to significantly increase non-market housing uh, that's going to be built. It might need to go up to 20,000 because of the, the changing circumstances. But even then, of course, you're still going to have um, some private housing. But but I'm with you that we're probably going to need to uh, build even more, build more, you know, non-market housing, whether that's social housing, whether that's uh, cost rental ha- housing. But still, yeah, there's going to be, uh, you know, private market housing that's going to be, you know, always going to be a significant component of that.
1: Yeah, no, it is. And and think, again, it comes back to that land question that that's so fundamental. And I think it does come back to you know that if land is such an essential component because i think for example housing associations the not-for-profit housing bodies like they say to me and they've said this publicly they are a problem they could be building more if they had more access to land the okulon housing cooperative who are the only one only entity who've built actually affordable homes to sell for people home buyers to buy in this country for the last 10 years the government hasn't built one now they have got the land from the council. But you talk to Hugh Brennan and O'Kulon. he says their issue is land. They can't yeah. access land. So the state could actually be doing a lot more in terms of facilitating those not-for-profit providers of both social cost rental and affordable purchase to buy as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So whether it's facilitating um, the AHBs to, to build or whether it, it's facilitating local authorities to build... Part of that is going to have, um, you know, access to land. And uh, at the moment, it's, it's quite expensive for local authorities um, who, who are the ultimate purchasers of land, even if uh, the AHBs uh, end up building on it. Um, it. It's very expensive for them to go out and acquire land, and they're just not inclined to do so partly because a lot of them got burnt uh, in the last uh, housing bubble there was a lot of local yeah. authorities who went out and bought land and then when the uh, housing market collapsed they, they were you know they ended up having to hold a lot of land and they had to you know repay the loans on that land and so a lot of them just don't have the appetite to uh, go out and, and buy more land even if they had the money to. So what you need is an agency um, such as the LDA to actually go out and purchase the land. But if you look at, you know, the LDA's mandate, it, it's fairly narrow in that it's only trying to bring to development uh, public land. Uh, I think it should be going out and buying private land as well, and including potentially using compulsory purchase orders to buy. Uh, private lands and uh, that might uh, give some people the he- heebie-jeebies that you have a public agency you know compulsor orally buying private land but you know i i think that should be part of its toolkit and so that would enable the state to replenish its land banks which could then be Ultimately developed by a variety of entities, whether it's, um, local authorities, whether it's AHBs or, or whoever, or even if it was a new, um, national, uh, housing company. Um, but yes, absolutely. Land is going to be crucial. Yeah. I mean, we do have significant amounts of state land, but it isn't always located in areas where there's public and social housing need. It doesn't always have the infrastructure that's on. We already talked about that, but absolutely, yeah. the, the state should be doing more to acquire land and acquiring it a, in a cost-effective manner. Yeah,
1: and approaching it in terms of you know, again, you know, you said you know we don't we don't have you know we don't know who owns land you know who controls it, which is ridiculous. Like, and in terms of like even the fact that the LDA, the Land Development Agency, is currently building up a state land database that is, I haven't seen any comprehensive report on it yet. It has it on its website and um, that we don't know this. Like we don't know yeah. what land is held by the state. We don't know in what condition is it in. And you're absolutely right about the investment in infrastructure because we know, for example, Irish water, there's major issues around uh, water connections, water infrastructure in housing developments, which is stopping housing developments. But even that's all comes back to, we don't look at this holistically and even the funding we spend on housing is viewed narrowly and it's like the state restricts, you know, what it's spending rather than as, you know, you're making the point, I've made the point. We have to see this as an investment and it's not just an investment that's needed in the building of a home. It's in the acquiring of the land. It's in the water infrastructure that goes in. It's in the community facilities that they all, the state has to see we have to provide this and invest in it. The market is never going to be able to provide an affordable home, if it's, you know, if it is expected to pay that or cover that. And also, yeah. if you are providing into the market, you should be putting affordability controls and limits on yeah. what, you know, and conditions. If you are providing land and, and, you know, infrastructure, which is part of the issue with the, I think is the project Tossig, uh, you know, planning permission and um, development that, that the LDA is doing that they're not putting in affordability, you know, measures in the, in the, in the bringing forward of developments from developers, I think
2: um, just taking that affordability issue, um, should say the say if the land development agency has land and it's going to say develop out that land, uh, I forget what the what the mix is. Uh, is it? what's um, you probably have the figures there what's the mix of um, of non-market affordable that the land development agency yeah. does? I, I can't remember what it is it, it's
1: different it's it's they're saying it's different according to different developments it seems right. to have shifted quite yeah. significantly over the last two years it was originally planned to be 20% that or it, 10% yeah. social and right. then it was going to be 30% affordable rental and 50% private market but some recent developments have come in. They're saying is going to be a hundred percent public, so it'll be twenty percent right. social and eighty percent cost rental. Um, so it seems to be that that's uh that that the mix they're doing is is in line with that. But I, you know, it's not clear. Yeah,
2: I, I think there's a bit of uh, it's, you know on shall we say, about um. Land development agency and, uh, and what, what it's, it's doing and, and the land that, that it's holding. And, so, and I mean, did you,
1: yeah, go on, you make your point. Yeah, there, so, yeah. So,
2: so if it's going to be building, say, a hundred percent, uh, non market land, well, then the issue of attaching strings to developers doesn't really arise. But yes. let's say, yeah. um, that it, the, the original kind of mixed is going to be at least prevalent in, in some areas where 50% of it is, is market land, uh, sorry, is market housing. Should we be um, attaching strings to say developers that you need to, to, to sell it at, at this price? I, I would think not because then it, it, it's, it's not market. Um, if you do that, you know, it's not being set by the market. No, I'm not trying to like, worship the market or anything like that. But if you start attaching strings and telling developers that, well, you can only charge uh, this much rent, etc., cetera, um, maybe that they won't build. I think the better solution is just to build more non-market housing and then allow also the developers to build market housing rather than try to shoehorn Affordability through attaching strings to their private developments. Just build if you want to bring costs down. Just build more cost rentals, especially, and and build more public housing rather than telling the developers, well, you can only charge this rent because I suspect then that they'd be much less inclined to to, to build. That. And that's something yeah. you, you have to take into yeah. consideration.
1: Yeah. Know? no 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 I completely agree and <laughs> it's what I've you know been advocating for a long time is that we should the state should be building um and I would argue it should be building social housing affordable cost rental which is really important affordable cost rental um and uh non-market uh, market housing not market housing to buy that people can yeah. buy it now I, I I do feel that we need to develop what I'm calling a social market in housing whereby if the state really went out and you know built I think there's no reason why it couldn't be building 5000 10000 homes to sell each year but if they if they were done as an affordable housing market and those units were kept within an affordable purchase housing market you could actually keep them permanently affordable in a way like we have our social housing tenancies you could have an affordable purchase
2: So are you talking about, say, a state-owned company, state-owned construction company building, say, 5,000 units a year or or, or something like that?
1: Yeah, exactly, that you would have that and and you could have, like, I I think that we need to see, it. you know, when you talked about there, you know, what's happening with, you know, I argued that the private market isn't going to deliver what the government said it's going to deliver anyway. But now on top of that, we have the inflation, cost inflation crisis, we have, you know, Ukraine war. We have, um, you know, that the private market is, um, you know, as you say, is unlikely to deliver. It's what the government has set out. It thinks it's going to deliver. Um, and even the private market, the problem is it is becoming dominated with the delivery of the private supply in Ireland is becoming dominated with, um, the ability to rent unaffordable yeah. units. So we have very little supply from the private market. Yeah.
2: Well, l- let me talk about the uh, state owned company, and then yeah. maybe we'll, we'll talk about the you know how, how to improve viability in you know without just reducing apartment standards and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm. I, I like the idea of of a state-owned company. Um, I mean, there's obviously advantages and, and and disadvantages of state yeah. owned company one of the advantages of a state owned company is that well you, you can pay the workers well you know you don't have to necessarily rely on bogus self employment you, you know you're not You shouldn't
1: pass. be rely you shouldn't yeah, have absolutely. bogus self employment yeah, yeah, yeah. i think yeah. you give permanent contracts why don't we give yeah. permanent contracts yeah. as we do in the health services in education yeah so if if you
2: look at say Terms and conditions, especially, you know, around middle income workers and below middle income workers, which um, construction workers typically are, the, the tradespeople anyway. anyway. Uh, public sector employment generally respects, you know, labor law much better than, say, the private sector. So that's one advantage of, of a state-owned company. Another advantage of a state-owned company is that, you know, it's under public... Control essentially, yeah. and you can direct housing wherever you want it. Um, so you you can build in areas and at uh, prices that the, the private sector wouldn't want to build at. So that's another uh, advantage of it. Um, I think you know we're, we're both in agreement that the, the state needs to significantly up its building of of housing where it whether it does that through the conventional method, which is essentially contracting builders to build, which is typically how you know they they build uh social housing, whether it's on public land or private land, what they do is they go out and contract the builder. Yeah. Whether they do that or whether they, they they set up a state-owned company, uh both of those cases is is obviously going to involve uh significant costs to the state. I think there is uh, a question then as to it's certainly not the only question that comes into this equation but it, it is a question as to which is the most cost effective method of doing if it's the case that a state-owned company isn't the most cost effective method that doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't do it for the reasons that i said but it does uh, it is something that you have to consider so yeah do, do, do i have a view on which is going to be the most cost effective method? I would say it probably depends on the, on the size of, of the company. If you look at, um, say building firms that are out there, Kearns, Grenvay and, and stuff like that, they're typically not that big. The construction sector doesn't really benefit from. Economies of scale because every unit is kind of unique. It's, it, it's built on, you know, a unique tract of land, which might have its own challenges and all of that. So, um, they're not massive, uh, building companies typically. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I, I would suspect that a, a company, a state owned construction company, which, which has 10,000 employees probably wouldn't there would be efficiency issues there because very few private building companies are, are, are that size. But but certainly, yeah, we could nationalize one of the big big companies, you know, and you know just take over take over one of them and then just direct them uh, towards building. So I, I'm definitely. Uh, you know, I, I like the state-owned construction company one, but, um,
1: I'm, but I, but I would I, think though, there's that it, it's more than like I would see it as more than just construction. And, and I know you talk about this as well. And you've, you've written a blog as well around the question of, you know, the different expertise. It would more be like, cause Glenn and Cairn are developers. Yeah. Along with, you know, the construction companies or the CISCs. You know, they're the the actual the, the who do the construction. Now I think Karen and Glenvee possibly do both, yeah. um and have elements of both, but they also, you know, contract the construction bit. But I would see a development construction company is what the state should be developing. And even if you're saying it's not completely in the narrowest sense, value for money, I think you you that I think the, the cost effectiveness question has to be looked at in a really broad terms because if we look at the economic you know impact of not doing it yeah that that is so high in terms of our economy in terms of lost social capital of people emigrating in terms of the the costs out of the economy in terms of rent all people's rent which is just you know going off to investor funds or landlords it's it's wealth accumulation rather than people being able to spend it in their own lives in in the local economy and um, that those if you take a wider cost benefit analysis and also i think there's major questions for me not major questions there's major major arguments in favor of it and things like tackling the vacancy and dereliction so there is no willingness on developers big developers Um, or investors to go tackle the vacancy or dereliction because they don't, it's messy. They don't control the properties. And that is in part why we have this, you know, criminal level of vacancy and dereliction. Like we probably have a hundred thousand, we've plus a hundred thousand plus buildings, uh, vacant and derelict that could be done. A construction, state construction company combined with CPOing could really go out. And I think over a five to 10 year period, tackle that. Then on top of that, you could add the climate retrofitting. Who is going to do the climate retrofitting? And where is the, the, um, the workers going to come from that? On top of that, further again, you have the whole question. The private sector is saying we don't have the capacity. And I was even thinking it for as basic as you know, people saying they can't get a plumber, right? They can't get a, someone to fix the roof. And I was thinking, well, in a way, is a plumber not like a doctor in that you can't have your home functioning, if you don't have a proper plumbing, if you, there's a leak in the roof, and that why wouldn't it be great if we had actually a public service that you could ring and say, I need a plumber. And so I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of economic and social arguments behind us creating this capacity, and particularly when we look to the future. Yeah,
2: I, I mean, um, there's always going to be competing interests um, in terms of, cost effectiveness, uh the social good, et cetera. I think it's it's very difficult for us to kind of say what would be the, the best size of the state owned construction company without actually kind of sitting down going through all the numbers and and so on. So uh I, I don't know what the optimal size would be. In terms of like the vacancy dereliction thing, um I think you kind of need to make a, a distinction between those two vacancy on the one hand and, and dereliction on the other. Yeah. We have very low vacancy rates in Dublin. Uh, and that reflects the fact that we have a very tight housing market. It's so most of the housing is occupied um, because there's such shortage of housing, but there is a lot of dereliction on the other hand. So vacancy could be say you know just a, an apartment which is ready to rent but which isn't occupied we, we don't have much of that vacancy rates are very low especially where need is greatest but if of course if if you look around Dublin city centre um, not just in the city centre but uh, you know Fibsborough, uh, going out to other areas yeah there's a lot of derelict like, buildings there uh, in in my like in in the reports, I also interview a lot of uh, people from local authorities, director of housing, director of, of planning, and what what they say is that this is a problem that there's a lot of kind of uh, dereliction and a lot of the urban areas are actually run down and all of this kind of stuff. And that local authorities, there's a number, actually, a, there's a couple of different local authorities that I spoke to that remain anonymous, but one local authority in particular told me, look, we've had this uh, regeneration project that we've wanted to do for about 20 years in such and such city center, but we haven't been able to do it because there isn't access to public land. There isn't sufficient uh there's a critical mass of public land ownership and that is related to you can relate that to the, the problem of their election if, if you look at a place like Dorset street um there's a lot of it's pretty run down and a lot of dublin one is, is run down and this is prime located city center i mean i'm i'm not saying that we need to have an, an like a DoFans or anything like that and, and, you know, revamp it and and make it uh, difficult for, you know, residents who've been there a long time to to afford it. But certainly one barrier to, say, uh, redevelopment of urban areas, including where there's a lot of dereliction, is that you have many, many different landowners. There could be, say take Finsbury or something like that. There's plenty of dereliction there. You could have a hundred, two hundred different landowners who all have a different view on the type of price of their land, what, what they want to develop, to develop there. So it's very, very difficult once you have fragmented private ownership of land to actually Coordinate yeah. any type of development, yeah. and therefore, in those areas in particular, including where there's dereliction and highly, you know, fragmented land ownership. If you want to regenerate those areas, the state is going to have to step in and purchase a lot of those vacant, vacant and, and derelict properties, um, not just to redo them on an individual level, the, the derelict building, but to, you know, as part of a broader strategy to. replenish and regenerate those areas.
1: Yeah, no, I agree completely. And of course, that requires also funding and investment for local authorities that they haven't been given for (laughs) 40 (laughs) years. And again, it raises the question, I think, of you know, there's arguments around, and the government is saying, you know, we've never spent as much money on housing. We're investing, you know, as debating, uh, discussing with uh, Mary Fitzgerald or Mary Fitzpatrick on um, the, the Tonight Show last night. She was saying, I saw you. Was more money, you know, than ever. And in my head, going, we need to be doubling that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, we, we basically have, look, we actually do spend a lot of money on housing. And, As a proportion of 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 national income in 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 Ireland, it it, it might surprise some of the listeners, but we also have a very dysfunctional kind of housing market. Yeah. So it therefore necessitates uh, high levels of uh, public spending, uh, essentially. Yeah. Uh, But the issue, and and we have
1: a recovery of like we have to overcome forty years of failure to provide forty years of failure, And,
2: and maybe you know, maybe the biggest housing bubble in the world at the time in the 2000s. Yeah. Maybe even the biggest housing bubble in economic history. Certainly Ireland had one of the biggest housing bubbles in whole of world economic history. Yeah. And so it had one of the largest crashes. And public spending, even though we spend a lot, isn't always spent very well. So, you know, uh, with too much of a reliance on current spending uh hap Raz these sort of things uh we even in the capital spending program wasn't always well spent uh, public spending you know reliance on acquisitions of housing that there might have been there was reasons to for local authorities to acquire rather than build in the depth of the crash but yeah. certainly there was too much of reliance on that after the market had recovered and just added to the inflation in, in the markets. Um, if you look at Michelle Morris's work as well, uh, she argues that the way we spend money on, um, subsidizing social housing, isn't very good either. So her point is that if you look at the. Um, the rents that are charged in, in council housing, it's based on the tenant's income rather than the cost of maintaining the actual property. And that means that um, because the tenant's rent doesn't necessarily cover the cost of maintaining the property, um, not enough money is spent on, you know, maintenance of social housing. And that doesn't just push things out forward. It actually accumulates over time so that you actually need to spend more overall and so you know if tenants um rents were more tied to the cost of maintenance and i'm not saying you know we should charge tenants more and and all of that you you could give them other subsidies so that they're they're no worse worse off uh well that would be another reform so there's a variety of ways in which our Uh, Public housing spending isn't, you know, always spent very smartly, but we do actually spend significant amount and and we will need to spend more uh, because of the Ukrainian refugee crisis, because of uh, the likely continued misfiring of the private market in the face of material and cost inflation as well. So there's, yeah, um, we don't always use our public funds very smartly.
1: Yeah. And I think also Michelle Norris made the point that, uh, you know, our low rents in our council housing is a very effective anti-poverty measure. Yes. And I think my view is that we should keep it as an anti-poverty measure and recognize it as such. Yeah. But give that additional money into the local authorities so that it's not a case that they have to charge higher rents to push people into poverty, but actually that they have the money to cost to, to cover the maintenance because yeah. and we should acknowledge it, that this is actually not only is it a housing measure, it's also an anti-poverty measure. Yes. And I actually think that's the policy we need to do for cost rental as well, because the yeah. danger is with our cost rental model of the new developed by the Land Development Agency and others is that it is a rental model that pushes people into poverty and um, or at least is not a form of affordable housing and that we need to, subsidize it more rather than just looking at it as cost rental because also how can you develop affordable housing in a way in our current housing market that's at this again bubble height you know without subsidizing it so that it brings down those costs or subsidizing so the rents are lower
2: yeah I mean on the cost rental thing um, I mean I didn't really look at it that much in the report so I'm, I'm just kind of uh spitball in here a little bit um in terms of the rents that you can charge if you're going to go down a cost rental model isn't it somewhat out of your isn't it to at least a certain extent out of your hands because the idea of cost rental is that the rent that is charged is sufficient to cover the costs of construction and and financing that construction and repaying the loan on the construction Yeah. So the the rents are going to be determined by the cost of constructing the unit. So your hands are tied to a certain extent. Now, you can adjust those rents and lower those rents to a little bit uh, if you say, well, let's have the tenant repay the loan essentially over more years. So you know, if if you have cost rental, but you want to cover the cost of building developing that housing over say twenty five years, well then the rent that's charged to the tenant is going to be higher. The only real way of of changing that is is if you if you spread it out over more years. Uh, potentially to 40 years, but I, I think they want to do it to 40 years if, if I'm not, uh, mistaken. It's, isn't that the, the term? That, I, I think there
1: is a desire absolutely yeah. to to extend it out, but I do think that there is an issue with, and, and I don't know whether it's some people are just disconnected from the reality of, of income and renting, but arguing yeah. that 1200 a month for a one or two bedroom is an affordable rent. Yeah. You know, I think it's also possibly like, and i think the danger as well is that they develop cost rental that's based on the idea you know that in private rental people share at some level which minimizes costs yeah then in in affordable rental it's supposed to be your own individual home yeah so charging a 1200 a month for a rent that's not an affordable rent for anybody who wants to try save maybe to buy or you know for a lifetime basis yeah you know renting
2: yeah um I mean, the whole idea of cost rental is that it's not just poor people, it's also middle income people. Yeah. And I would guess that there's probably, say, in Dublin, um, how much does a teacher earn? Would a teacher have uh, 3,600 euros per month? Probably not. Uh, so if we think of affordability is a third of your income yeah. in order for... 1200 euros to be affordable your yeah. net income needs to be about 3600 I, I guess that would put you on something like you would need to be earning something like um 60 grand or 50 grand. i'd say that's 60 grand something like that um that's not middle income for for most people uh so how do you get that down well you know cost rental means your hands are, you know, you just have to cover the cost.
1: Except when uh, you come back to your original point about land. It, yes.
2: So if, if, you, if you come back to land, there are things that you can do uh, to reduce the price of land. Um, one thing uh, you can do is if, if you just build more houses, for instance, uh, public housing, uh, social housing, uh, that will have an effect, a dampening effect on house prices because you're increasing the supply, you know, uh, public uh, yeah. social housing. And when house prices start to come down, well, then land prices also come down as well because they're very much tied together. So once you actually, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and egg here. The, the state needs to ramp up in the initial years and just kind of bite the bullet a little bit and then other costs will come down cost of land will come down and then that will enable the state to actually have you know more affordable cost rental housing so i'd say in the initial years you just need to ramp up building um uh, whether that's social housing or you know, cost rental at at twelve hundred and eventually those those costs will, will, will come down. But I'm not sure there's that much you can do if you're we're saying it's cost rental, it's covering the costs. You know, um yeah twelve hundred is basically what is covering the costs over you know thirty or forty years.
1: Yeah, we we'll agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> Well listen, Rob, uh it was great to have you on. And yeah, we, yeah. I could talk all day to you and we'll we'll uh, we'll have to go over to our YouTube channel and do our seven hour YouTube on housing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that would <laughs> um, be enjoyable. Huh? That would be enjoyable.
1: It would be great fun for us anyway, not sure for <laughs> anyone else. Um but listen, it was great to have you back on and people can check out that report at um the website task.ie is it yeah
2: yeah the www.task.ie just go into the publication section so yeah
1: great yeah so that's uh, rob sweeney there from task um, you can check out that report they've done as you said on task.ie and um thank you to our listeners for listening and if you can share around the podcast um, the more people that get to hear it, the better. As we know, hopefully, we will change things a bit, open people's minds. Um, thank you for taking the time to listen. But yeah, if you can share it around on social media, um, if you can uh, like us on the set of review as well, um, and the more it gets spread around, the more people that listen, the better. And also, we thank our patrons who are supporters of ours who keep the show on the road. And who fund us, we're completely independent media reliant on you, the listeners to fund the cost of production. If you can, um, please go over to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, our independent media producers and sign up for whatever you can each month, you will get the podcast first into your inbox before they go out everywhere else. Um, and do let us know your thoughts. Um, contact me on at Rory Hearn on uh, Twitter or Instagram. Let us know um, your thoughts, your comments, or issues, or subjects you'd like us to cover in the podcast. Uh, it's great to have your feedback. And thank you for all those of you who do send me on um, the comments and ideas and stuff. It's great. I appreciate it. And I uh, don't always get the time to reply. Apologies for that. But please keep them sending in um, and keep listening, sharing it around. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you all soon.